So it felt a little bit hard to give a talk in the wake of Joseph's very inspiring talk about the end of suffering. <laughs> and um, so there was my side of it. And then in speaking with some of you whom, uh, although inspired, came in contact with the aspect of mind that says, Ooh, not me, I'll never make it. Um, so I thought tonight might be a good time to give a talk on the judging mind for both of us. <clears throat> Many of you have been sitting for a while now and probably amidst the silence get a sense of just how savage the judging mind can be, how painful it can be when it arises. And it has many different forms that it can arise in. It can be that we judge others for how long they sit, the way they sit, how long they walk, where they walk, how much they eat, how fast they move, the clothes they have, their hair, or lack of it. We walk into a room and we tend to size up people around us. And that might differ according to our influences. Maybe we've been practicing uh, by way of Mahasi Sayadaw tradition and we have the idea that to move very slow is good. And that if people are moving fast, it simply proves they're not mindful. Or we might be someone who has been practicing the jhanas. And we have a measuring stick of sitting for very long periods of time. And we feel pity for those around us who don't know of the immense benefits of the jhana system. Or we may have been practicing like Sayadaw Utejaniya teaches. And the emphasis is just to walk in a natural and easeful way. And we see somebody walking very slowly, and we think, hmm, they're stuck on concentration. Don't they know? Sometimes we're very judgmental of ourselves. We get critical of everything we do. If we sit, it's not long enough. If we're getting concentrated, it's not deep enough. If we walk, it should be slower or faster, that we don't have enough continuity. We get judgmental of how we do what we do. Our breath is tight and controlled. Our energy is too lax or too tight. And this is harshness. We have strong expectations. And there's a level of perfection that we are trying to live up to, and we always fail and end up feeling guilty, worthless, no good. Or we might have a tendency to imagine how others are judging us. We swallow in the meditation hall. We feel rejected by everyone around us. We drop something in the dining room, and everyone is thinking, what a klutz. We stumble. Everyone's looking. And there's that inner contract contraction, that cringe of being not good, of feeling self-conscious, stupid. And then we actually start engaging in dialogues of defense. Well, we had to swallow. The throat's really scratchy and tight today. But we had to, we'd start defending the, the very things that we have imagined others to be judging us for. Or we might get judgmental about the way the center is run, that we have ideas about how the office could be better managed, about what the kitchen could do differently the food they could serve that would be better for us. We might have judgment about 
the landscaping, that it really isn't the right landscaping for this type of environment. We might have judgments about how the yogi jobs should be divided up, how they should be done. We uh, just think that we know how this place should be run. And we lose sight of the fact that in coming here, we're really relinquishing the running of the center so that we can just simply watch the workings of our minds. There's actually kind of no end to the ways that we judge ourselves, at least in my experience. It comes in so many different forms. Some of us may have one tendency, others another, and yet we probably get you know, all the breeds that they come parading through as we practice, come in a blink of an eye. You know, just somebody new arrives in the instant judgment. It's just amazing to watch how quick it happens in the mind. And you know, then we start living as if that judgment is true. And we really don't pay attention many times to what's happening in a moment of judgment, how painful it really is. I felt kind of amused the other day. I was out hiking, and I put on a Red Sox hat. And I'm not a person that ever watches baseball. But I just imagined that people, you know, kind of summed me up as a red, you know, all-American girl with a, who was a Red Sox fan. And, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. That same day, I also watched how um, we were coming up side of a mountain. I was with two other friends. And one woman ran into an area where she was having a little bit of trouble. And so this man and three boys was coming down. And he was quite a large man. And so immediately my mind put together the story that he was having a hard time keeping up with these three young kids. There's my friend having a hard time, and he extends his hand. And um, as he does this, you know, he, he's like, you know, grab on tight, hold as hard as you can, and helping her up. And as she comes up, he says, I do this for a living. <laughs> you know, he was a firefighter. But, you know, my mind had this whole other story going, just in a flash. It's amazing to watch. One time I was teaching in New York City. And at the end of the day, it was a day-long retreat, at the end of the day, a woman came up to me. And she said that she had been directed to this retreat because she had once sat another retreat with a teacher whom she had really liked. And when she had inquired, uh, she had been directed towards my retreat, that I was that person. And so she said, you know, it, when I got here, I realized you weren't her. And she said, you were up there. You were this all-American girl. <laughs> and I'm Canadian, but anyhow. <laughs> um, and, and she said, but, you know, I feel like I benefited from the day. And I thought, well, that's nice. <laughs> and, but, you know, I wanted to help her. So I said, so who, you know, who was this teacher that you practiced with? And she said, well, it was about X number of years ago. The woman had really short hair. She taught at Tibet House. And as I listened, I went, well, you know what? I am that woman. <laughs> and it had happened that I had taught some years before, right after coming back from Burma, when I had shaved my head. I'd been a nun. My hair was very short. I taught at Tibet House, and it had all this sacred art around. And it was just really this um, you know, kind of very Buddhist environment. And this day long I'd been teaching was in an elementary school. It had paintings from all these kids on the walls, and there I had my, you know, hair and and you know looked very different. And it, she was it was so interesting to watch her realize that I was that same person. And this is what the you know the judging mind pigeonholes people in ways that you know, aren't true. And it's just, 
it's if we can really learn to be aware of the judging mind, it can be like letting everybody out of their box <laughs> so they can be who they are and not who we think they are. Because, <coughs> excuse me, um, judgment is really not the faculty of wise discernment. No, it's where the mind gets colored. It's conditioned. Within our judging mind is conditioning that we often judge according to values that we have learned, could have been from our childhood, from our parents, from our peers, and we'll be influenced by different things. It could be influenced by you know, quite wholesome values. It could be influenced by prejudices. It could be influenced by beliefs. It could be influenced by the society, the culture in which we grew up in. And this, you know, just often is not reflected in reality. And so it's really good to be, be able to be aware of how quick this judging mind comes in, you know, in meeting somebody for the first time. And we, it's all, I always feel so fortunate when I might have met somebody and there may have been an instant dislike, dismissal. And if you had the choice, you just wouldn't bother with them. And then for whatever reason, they remain in your life and you see, it had nothing to do with who this person is. In our practice, we really begin to see judging mind in sometimes a more subtle way. Just the sense of I am. The conceit of I am. I am in comparison to others. And we begin to see how painful this is and how there really is this coagulation of self around these, this comparing mind. We begin to see in moments when we judge others, what's really happening in our experience, how painful that is, how it creates a sense of separation, distance. The Buddha once said to Ananda, therefore, Ananda, you should not be a hasty critic of people. You should not hastily pass judgment on people. Who passes judgment on others? Other people harms themselves. And we start to see this through our meditation, through our practice. Just what attachment identification with the judging mind brings. One time I sat a self-retreat and it was a secluded retreat. For five weeks, I did not see another person. For me, it was the seeing how much relief there was from this aspect of the judging mind. To not continually be sizing myself up in comparison to others. And it was just like this huge level of experience that was not there. Certainly, I could still judge myself quite freely, but um, you know, just, just this you know, continual sizing up that we do was not there, the comparing mind. But we don't live in isolation. So rather than dealing with the judging mind by secluding ourselves away from people, it's far better to learn to have a wise relationship with it to really be able to recognize it, to see it as it is, for what it is, in, and then to see it in its nature. In the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist analysis of mind and mental processes, um, judgment gets defined as a form of conceit, this I am compared to the world around us. And it's described as an imagination not based in reality. 
Bhikkhu Bodhi actually says something quite strong about, uh, about conceit. And this is from his guide to the Abhidhamma. He says, conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness. Its function is self-exaltation. It is manifested as a saving glory. Its proximate cause is greed dissociated from views. And it should be regarded as madness. When the judging mind is there, what it's telling us is so biased, so confused. You know, it can be rooted in greed, aversion, delusion. And so it doesn't, it's a form of ignorance. And, you know, when I read that, you know, it should be regarded as madness. It, it, it didn't take me to judging, <laughs> judging, the judging that comes up, but it helped me to really see how painful it is. We know that when someone is in some way uh, suffering from some kind of mental imbalance, maybe they're schizophrenic or have psychotic episodes, you know, our hearts can just ache for how deluded the mind can be and how painful that can be. And yet, here is the state of mind that we so frequently encounter as being defined as madness. And, you know, it just told me, it put me in touch with how painful the judging mind is. And how, you know, what it tells us is not to be trusted. It's to be seen for what it is. And the level of conceit of I am is actually something that is around until we are fully enlightened. You know, it may get much more refined than what we sometimes experience it as in very gross levels, but that it's something that, you know, until greed, aversion, and delusion are completely uprooted, there will be this subtle sense of I am. So we need to really discover a wise healthy way of being with this aspect of experience. Uh, I want to say that uh, one of the benefits I have found from all of my years of practice is that there is just a greater capacity to laugh at myself. And I want to share a story that comes from this winter of where, there's two reasons why I want to share the story. I'll tell the story and then I'll tell you why I want to share it. So actually the first is about laughing at myself. It happened during the winter that I was doing cross-country skiing a lot. And um, I don't think, did I tell this story? No, thank you. Uh, it uh, It was wonderful. And then came this day where I was going to go out for a ski, but I first had to go to the bank and to a store. And so as I went to the bank and to the store, I kept thinking, hmm, it's really chilly today. And then I think, that's funny. You know, it's the same temperature as it was yesterday. What's the problem? You know, why does it feel so cold today? And repeatedly through my journey, I would think, wow, it's really cold today. And then I went to get on the ski trail, and again I had this thought. And so as I felt the coldness, you know, I was mindful of the coldness, I thought, hmm, what's going on here? And so I actually looked down, and I discovered I'd forgot to put on my pants. <laughs> I did have long johns on. <laughs> I can't tell you that moment, what that moment of looking down was like. But it's like, oh, okay. 
um, fortunately, they were black long johns, and they probably just looked like tattered leggings. But uh, in that moment, it was the discovery I didn't have pants on. <laughs> you know, earlier in my life, I you know, was just such a perfectionist and you know, really was a hard taskmaster. And what happened was I laughed for days over this. You know, I, it was just, it was, it was so freeing, you know, and, and I, I don't know what the people in the shops and the bank thought, but <laughs> it was just so freeing to wholeheartedly laugh at myself rather than moving into harsh judgment. Why I also wanted to share that story is I think it also points to the importance of the quality of inquiry. Because there had been mindfulness of cold, you know, but it was just like cold, cold, cold. <laughs> and then, you know, I realized later, oh, a little bit of inquiry is helpful. <laughs> so they are a dynamic duo, <laughs> much better accompanied by each other than alone. <laughs> And I, you know, I think that it is possible to develop a relationship with this judging mind where it is not so fierce, not so harsh, not so cruel. You know, and with it, whichever way it goes, you know, some of us experience it in the form of being superior. <clears throat> you know, we feel like we're better than those around us. You know, maybe we've been practicing for years, and you know. Out of that, we are just better than other people. It's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you know, then, or we have a really good sitting, and it's just like that. You feel that puffing up. <laughs> Look at me. Think anyone noticed? <laughs> and then we, we just get this loftiness, this inflammation of self. I was wondering today if ibuprofen would help. <laughs> you know, we get really inflamed around this sense of self. You know, um, so, but you know, when we look, when we see, we see just how fragile that is. You know that we have to keep working at bolstering oneself up. That you know, it's, it's a full-time job because <laughs> you know it's not the way it always feels. And, and then you know, we really end up kind of trying to convince everyone about how great we are. And not, you know, if you've seen people who, who really play this out without much awareness, and that's not to feel judgmental of them, <laughs> but um, if you can just feel the suffering that's there, how tiring, and how out of touch we get, and how painful that is. So, um, you know, it's something in our own experience to really see when we start to puff up. And just to, to notice what, what plays in there. You know, what we have to do to maintain that. And, and then, you know, the sense of distance that it puts between us and those we are better than. The separation that it causes. I mean, so if you're on the other end where you're looking up to somebody and, you know, they are the superior one, you know, you feel that really gives you a sense of, of how painful that is because there's just like feeling of no sense of possibility of connection, of true connection, of really being seen. And when we're in that state, we can't see others. We can't see ourselves. No, it's so disconnected. It's so inflamed, out of touch with the way things are. One time in my own practice when there was, you know, a sense of judging others and being superior, and there'd be, you know, some instantaneous thought in seeing somebody, it would just spring up, and I just started recognizing it and saying, oh, just another place to be right. You know, to, to just finding a way to be light with that tendency. 
so that it, it doesn't become savage in the seeing of it. Oh, look, here you go again. We see it in the culture around us that actually there's a lot of energy that can get put into maintaining one's status in comparison to others, to you know, have a sense of, of having more than uh, our neighbors, being better than. And it, you know, it's, not, it's not very satisfying. Then there's those of us who measure ourselves by feeling inferior, where we fall short, we're not so good as others. Sitting here in the hall, the sense that everyone else is enlightened, and we are the only one really struggling. And we are so lost, we will never uh, be on par with others. That can happen even within our own experience in this retreat, where our last retreat was so much better. Or even our last sitting. And this sitting is so inferior to our last sitting. We start to see just this play of not being good enough, where we just have these imaginary ideals and we are constantly falling short of them. And it comes in the form of unceasing blows and really just leads into this downward spiral where the heart collapses. We actually can find that we get comfortable there, that we just fall into a sense of resignation where, or there might be a, a fear of failure, so we just never apply ourselves. Somehow, in the time that we live in this part of the world, that you know that things are so competitive, that so often many of us harbor deep shame. And you know, at the end of a retreat once, when you know how sensitive you feel sometimes going out into the world, well, I heard a song from Sting. And it was, you know, just a couple of lines. And it was, and I hung my head in shame. And when I heard that line, I just burst into tears. You know, for how much we suffer through shame, through feeling worthless, not good enough. One of my teachers, uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, he really struck a chord one time. He was talking about the precious human birth. And he said something that was, it was so strong when he said it. You know, it was just like, oh. he said, it is inappropriate to disparage ourselves and put ourselves down when we have within us awakened potential. Inappropriate to disparage ourselves. And yet, it's a habit that we often fall into. But as we pay attention, we begin to see the voice of it, and we come to know it as just an empty shadow. The next form of conceit is that of being equal to where there's still a sense of I am, but I am equal to others. And somewhere, uh, you know, with the messages of the world, equality, uh, it, I, you know, I first heard this and thought, that seems all right to me, what's the problem? But then, you know, it was it, contemplating it more, it's really just, again, the sense of comparing the sense of separation. Um, and there can be within that an equalness that doesn't allow for differences. 
in Australia, they have something that really illustrates this. They have what's called the tall poppy syndrome. So Australia was first settled... Uh, well, the, the first Westerners to go there were either convicts or peasants. And they were people whom in their lives had been looked down upon a lot. And so in settling into living in Australia, setting up structure there, they didn't want to be looked at that way anymore. And so it started to happen that when one person would grow in a way that they started to stand up, stand out, they cut them down. And it's called the tall poppy syndrome. It doesn't allow for these differences to grow and to blossom. We find in the world that there can be natural hierarchies that are based in function rather than self-worth. But we often interpret hierarchies as a value system. But if we look at something like a tree, a tree that has roots under the ground, it has, you know, it has a, a trunk, it has branches, it has leaves, and so you have the roots under the ground that are in the dark, you have the leaves that are exposed to the light. Now, on one system you could say, wow, the leaves have it so good. But if the, if the roots from the ground were exposed to light in the same way, the whole tree would die. And so, you know, we really need to watch when we start to try to make everything so equal and not allow for natural functions that can bring harmony. Uh, You know, just even like living in spiritual community has showed me where there can be this tendency to always want to have an equal voice. But if the car breaks down, it's better that the mechanic speaks up than the cook. You know, it's just, it's functional. It doesn't mean the mechanic is better than the cook. You know, there's just a practicality to it. And we, I've also seen too, living in community, that the, the whole sense of equality can lead to kind of keeping an eye out for if somebody's getting more than me. You know, we want our equal share. And we see this in our families, too, with our siblings. You know, so this, this sense of equality can actually lead to rivalry, competition. Um, it, it can take root in some very painful ways. So we find you know, a lot in our experience within the judging mind there will be either sense of being superior, there will be sense of being inferior, or a sense of being equal to. And, you know, all, all again, feeding into this sense of I am. In working with the judging mind, it is to learn to be friends with it. That um, we want to be friends with it, but not entertain it. And a really good description that I love about it, it, or being with any aspect of experience, is being like a doorman at a hotel, where you greet what comes, but you don't follow every guest. And so this is so with the judging mind. And it's tantalizing. You know, these feelings of puffing up, you know, and it's minuscule at times. It, you know, you, you don't see it so clearly all the time. But that to, we, we so often just get on the train. But to not indulge in it, to not give ourselves over to, but to remain aware of, in the center of, the presence of. And it's then that all these forms of judgment can move through the mind and one is unmoved. It doesn't throw us about. 
It doesn't create this very fragile sense of self. And sometimes it's, you know, really needing to pull up that gumption that says, I see you, you know, that we aren't going to just buy into it, even though it's deeply habituated. It doesn't mean that we push it away, that we get angry, and certainly a spiral that happens around the judging mind is judging the judger. That that is something to watch for. Because that is so lacerating. That is so tormenting. But to, to really just, you know, be able to know it firmly as it is. And not pick it up. To remain aware. Present. Last week I was talking about um, how when I was bicycling and the, the mind state of doubt, how it came up and, you know, it just in a, a second of not being mindful of it, I found myself on the side of the road. Well, I also, you know, in, in all my years of being in the uh, mountains or hills and walking, you know, have really come to see how in doing very strenuous activities, one has to be so aware of what arises in the mind and there is no space for indulgence because it saps the energy so much. And last year when I was trekking in Ladakh and going over high passes and was really sick at the time, I knew that it was a sense that my life depended on not indulging in these mind states that come through. And just having to really bear witness and be present to, but not moved by. And, you know, just seeing if at times we are in touch with that warrior-like energy that can be with these great torments in the mind. Sometimes we will get swept away. And to really just watch then the effect of being inflated, deflated, inflated, deflated. And just to feel what that is like, to feel the suffering in it. In the moments where we feel really good, how long does that last? How satisfying is it really when we, when we really look at it? If we find that, you know, one time when I was getting caught in the, the judging of the judger, so there was an awareness of the judging mind, but then a judgment about that. Then uh, what helped me at that time, I was using the noting practice, and so I put the word just in front of judgment. So it's just judging. That's all it is. It's just a judgment. And that really helped the mind to find balance with uh, just seeing it as it was, rather than, oh my God, here it is again, and getting caught in that tailspin. And sometimes we will just really need compassion. It's a place where we will develop patience, perseverance, just The willingness to see something that keeps repeating itself over and over again. And until we really understand it, it will repeat. And then it it may come one day that as it arises, there's no reaction to it. It doesn't throw us in the same way. I found, too, that um, in those moments where it has that harshness, where it's so severe, 
to really just know it as this is suffering and that all beings suffer in this same way when caught in delusion. And that has helped me to depersonalize it. We get a lot of practice in the world around the judging mind because it very much comes up in relationship to the worldly conditions. And the worldly conditions being that of pleasure and pain. And you know, often with pleasure and pain, when uh, pleasure is strong, that's when we have a tendency to say, I'm good. You know, I feel really good. There's a whole sense of identification around the pleasant experience. But then when it shifts and pain is present, the sense that we've done something wrong, something was lost, we didn't do it right, we're to blame. Our whole sense of self-worth being defined by whether there's an abundance of pleasure or an abundance of pain. And if we really look at just being in this situation of having a human body, we can see that it's not very likely that we will escape unpleasant experiences. And so it's like, can we allow these feelings to be there without defining ourselves by them. We also tend to have a lot of judgment or conceit around gain and loss. When we get what we want, when we have what we want, we get happy and then loss happens and we're crushed by it. We see it in practice when there's periods of peace, calm, tranquility, a sense of gain, we've got what we want. Moment of insight, you know, very happy. Um, and then when things change, energy plummets. Concentration is not as strong. Sense of loss. And we're no good anymore. And, you know, if we get attached to gain, it, it, it's like getting, trying to make something permanent, which in its nature is impermanent. So, it doesn't allow for the ebb and flow of life. You know, sometimes the tide is in, it's full, it's high. Sometimes the tide is out, it's low. We don't have to define ourselves by it. Praise and blame. Mm. It's a great uh, place (laughs) of practice (laughs) to see if we can find some equanimity with. You know, just watching the mind when someone lavishes praise upon us. And what happens there? And then someone comes along and blames us. You know, that's where, you know, we're at the mercy of living through other people's judgments. And it's excruciating because everybody has different value judgments. And, you know, it just becomes very, very painful. And I really love how the Buddha exemplified being able to live without uh, needing to have this reference point of others' sense of worthiness or unworthiness to, to feel whole and complete. That many people were said very disparaging things to the Buddha. One, t- one time there was a man who came to see him and he was really angry with the Buddha and he wanted to rile him up. And you know, he tried really hard to rile up the Buddha. And um, you know, at one point the Buddha, he just, he just sat there and he listened. And then he finally said to the man, asked the man if he was finished. And um, then he said, did he ever feed his guests? And the man responded, saying yes. And, and then the Buddha said, well, what if they refused to accept the food? Who would it belong to then? And the man said, of course, it would still belong to him. And the re- Buddha replied by saying, in the same way, I do not accept your insults. They remain with you. 
He didn't define himself. He didn't get swept away in that. His self-esteem wasn't tied up in that way. So there's a a story that I love about these... um, I guess I should finish that off before I go on to this story. (laughs) The next two are fame and disrepute. Well, we can see pretty readily the suffering of this, even if we've never been in the place of being famous. Just reading the headlines in the news. You know, people in Hollywood, politicians, that, um, you know, one day somebody's great, wonderful, you know, at the, you know, right up there. They do the smallest thing, and the press is all over them, and they're no good. You know, they've just fallen from grace. And if you are tied up in that, if that's what you need to feel whole and healthy, it's really going to be excruciating. And this is a story that I love that comes from the eight winds that cannot move me. Sudangpo, a famous Buddhist poet of the Song dynasty, was assigned to an official post at which was situated at the northern shore of the Yangtze River. Across the river on its southern shore was the Golden Mountain Temple, where there was a famous Chan master. One day, Sudangpo Uh, feeling quite advanced in his practice, wrote a poem and asked his attendants to send it to the Chan master for verification. And the poem went as follows. Bowing with my highest respect to the Deva of Devas, this being the Buddha, whose fine light illuminates the whole universe, the eight winds cannot move me, for I am sitting upright on the golden purple lotus blossom of spiritual attainment. After receiving the poem from the attendant and reading it, the master picked up the brush and wrote down one word as his comment. When the attendant came back with the poem, Su Dongpo, expecting words of praise from the Chan master, quickly opened it to read the comment. However, on that page, nothing was written except for the word fart. Um, It's P in Chinese, which means utter nonsense. Upon seeing such an insult, Su Dongpo was ablaze with the fire of anger. Immediately he boarded a boat and crossed the Yangtze River to argue with the master. Before the boat even pulled onto the shore, the Chan master was already standing there waiting for Su Dongpo. Upon seeing him, Su Dongpo said, Chan master, we are such intimate Dharma friends. It is fine that you do not compliment my practice or my poem, but how can you insult me like this? Innocently, as if nothing had happened, the Chan master asked, how have I insulted you? Without saying another word, Su Dongpo simply showed him the word fart. Laughing wholeheartedly, the Chan master said, Oh, didn't you say that the eight winds cannot move you? How come you were sent across the river with just a fart? (laughs) Hearing that, Foyan said, uh, hearing that, Su Dungpo was extremely embarrassed. (laughs) Seeing in our own lives how these eight winds move us or not, can they just pass through? without being caught in identification, without creating this sense of self around. So we explore the judging mind from gross levels of inflation, um, inferiority, um, to actually a very fine, subtle level of the conceit of I am. We really pay attention to the suffering that arises from it and the relief that comes when we can actually just see it in its nature, when we aren't defining ourselves by it. We see that it is just another appearance in the mind, and it is not the story of who we are. If we become familiar with the judging mind, 
we find that we do actually have the capacity to make wise discernment in our lives. We need to make decisions that are value-based. We make decisions all the time in our lives. But these decisions aren't referring back to self, aren't defining who we are. It means that, you know, if we're buying a house or a car, and we can only afford something modest, because that's what our budget allows, and then we won't be over our heads in debt, that it doesn't mean we're a failure because our neighbor has something so much better. We, it allows us to just live in this functional way, to make judgments that are not colored by these uh, you know, conditioned ideas, beliefs, views. It allows us to see the differences, the uniqueness of all living beings as they are and not comparing one to another, but in their uniqueness, that we are all a part of this whole. It helps us to break down the barriers of separation. I'd like to just close with a um, teaching from a 17th century Zen poet named Kenren Kushu. The morning glory which blooms for an hour differs not at heart from the giant pine which lives for a thousand years. Each of us in our uniqueness, allowing this to flower, to blossom. Not needing to get caught in this comparing mind that creates so much suffering. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.